Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Unchained is now on YouTube. You can find the most recent episodes there every week on the Unchained podcast channel, and we'll soon be getting the full archive up. Also, if you're not yet subscribed to my weekly newsletter, go now to unchainedpodcast.com to sign up. CypherTrace makes it easy for exchanges and crypto businesses to comply with cryptocurrency anti-money laundering laws, avoid illegal sources of funds, and maintain healthy banking relationships. CypherTrace is helping you grow the crypto economy by keeping it safe and secure. Head to etherealsummit.com with the discount code LAURA20 to get 20% off tickets to join Laura and hundreds of the brightest minds in blockchain at Ethereal Summit New York, May 10th to 11th at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn. My guests today are Jay Kwan, founder and CEO of Tendermint and president of the Interchain Foundation, and Ethan Buckman, co-founder of Tendermint and Cosmos and technical director of the Interchain Foundation. Welcome, Jay and Ethan. Hello. Good to be here. Thanks, Laura. Great to be here. Jay, let's start with you. Cosmos and all the technology around it is just a massive system. I was trying to wrap my head around this, and it's there's just a lot there. So before we dive into all the pieces, why don't we give a high-level overview? What problem or problems were you trying to solve with this project, and what is the vision for the Cosmos system? Tendermint is it's an open-source project that started in 2014, and the idea is to create a better consensus system. Um, it, it started with the idea that you know, distributed systems, uh, distributed consensus systems can uh, be created without proof of work. And it uh, turns out if you use uh, classical Byzantine fault-tolerant consensus algorithms that don't require mining, you can actually address uh, speed, scalability, and, and the environmental issues associated with proof of work, uh, as in Bitcoin. Uh, so Tendermint is an open source consensus engine that can be used to uh, create any blockchain system. And we use Tendermint to create uh, Cosmos. So Cosmos, you can think of maybe Tendermint as an operating system. And Cosmos is maybe analogous to the World Wide Web. Uh, the idea is to create a network of blockchains where blockchains can literally uh, securely communicate with each other to create a scalable, interoperable network uh, of distributed ledgers. And so Cosmos, we recently launched the Cosmos Hub. It's a blockchain powered by Tendermint. It's a Byzantine fault-tolerant based proof-of-stake system uh, that doesn't require proof-of-work. And the purpose of the Cosmos Hub is to connect to many blockchains and enable um, token transfers via two-way pegging. And so uh, this way, we can create a scalable foundation for a new token economy. Wow. Okay. So <laughs> this was actually my next question for you. But even before we've asked it, I realized that some of the thoughts I had 
when I phrased this question were were actually incorrect. So there's Tendermint, the company, which is, you know, when I introduce you, that's uh, what you're CEO of. But then there's now also this Tendermint operating system that you described. And then Cosmos, you said, is a network that uh, uses Tendermint, I guess. Uh, it's built on top of Tendermint. And you called that a network of blockchains that's sort of like the World Wide Web, you said, as opposed to Tendermint being the operating system. And um, then within that, within the Cosmos network, you are now also operating something called the Cosmos Hub, which is different from the Cosmos network. And we'll, I guess, so we're going to dive more into that in a bit. But but there's like multiple things where some of these names are reused. Um, but did I get all those definitions correct? Sure. Yeah, that, that's basically correct. Um, so we use we use the term Tendermint to actually refer to multiple different things. Um, so one is the company. So the company is, is all in bits, but it does business as Tendermint. So you, you see it around as, as Tendermint Inc. Uh, and then there's Tendermint, the software, which we typically refer to as Tendermint Core. And this is the actual you know software that you would download on GitHub that you would run that is the basis of this operating system that we've been talking about. Um, and then there's uh, Tendermint, the consensus algorithm, which is kind of the underlying uh, protocol that is implemented in Tendermint Core, um, and so you know we, we use the word Tendermint to kind of refer to all three three different layers of that. All right, so let's go back to Cosmos, which is I think what most people think of when they hear your names. On March thirteenth, you guys launched the Cosmos Network, this Internet of Blockchains, which enables you know the different blockchains to be interoperable. And so, what is Cosmos and what are what problems are you trying to solve with Cosmos? Sure. So, um, like like Jay was saying, kind of the, the goal is you know if Tendermint is like an operating system or it, it's software for basically running a single blockchain, uh, and lots of people are out there building kind of individual, uh, independent, you know, siloed blockchains uh, that don't really communicate with one another well. We felt that uh, what we could what we could do with Cosmos was to start thinking about how to interconnect all those blockchains and how to design a protocol that would allow uh, different blockchains, even if they're built potentially, you know, with different consensus algorithms or with different uh, applications or different styles of managing a cryptocurrency, uh, that we'd still be able to have some protocol that allowed them to interoperate. Um, so, you know, unlike, so for, for instance, on Ethereum, kind of the vision with Ethereum was that you could deploy all these different smart contracts onto Ethereum and by virtue of all of them being on the Ethereum blockchain, you know, they'd all be able to communicate with, an, with one another. Um, and that's, you know, obviously led to a, a, an explosion in, in interest and value of the Ethereum network. And so in a similar way, we're trying to sort of generalize that a little bit further instead of saying, well, instead of having many applications on a single blockchain that are able to communicate with one another, like you have with Ethereum, we want to define a general purpose protocols that will allow many different blockchains to, you know, despite what is running on top of them, even very different, you know, applications um, to still be able to communicate with one another. And so that was really the, the, the key design goal of, of the Cosmos Network was to facilitate many independent heterogeneous blockchains uh, to still be able to communicate with one another. And so kind of the, the founding approach to that, um, that you know, at least, at least to get it started, is this idea of starting with what we call the Cosmos Hub. 
and and starting with a set of blockchains that will uh, the first thing they'll do is connect to the Cosmos Hub, and the Cosmos Hub will serve as this kind of router between the first set of blockchains um, that come online. And so, as you mentioned, the Cosmos Hub is online now. There's no other blockchains yet online in the Cosmos network. A lot of people are building, um, you know, their own blockchains and have either in, in testnet phase uh, or actually there is um, there's IrisNet, which is a blockchain uh, uh, based out of China that's built, you know, using the same technology stack as the Cosmos Hub, but they're not connected yet. Um, because we haven't quite finished the, the the piece that will allow them to interoperate what we call IBC or the inter-blockchain communication protocol, right? And so once that is actually developed and deployed, then these different blockchains, you know, at, at least these two, the Cosmos Hub and IrisNet, and then whatever others come online, will start to be able to communicate with one another. Uh, but kind of in the long term, the, the idea of the Cosmos network uh, was to roll out these protocols that would um, really do to the blockchain space what, um, you know, protocols like TCP did to the internet, which was to actually create the internet, create this massive network of interconnected, you know, smaller networks, right? And so in, in the same way, we think about this as like, you know, the interchain, right? So we have many chains out there, and we're trying to build protocols that will give us, you know, the interchain. And, and sort of right now, you know, we, we localize it in this idea of the Cosmos network, which is kind of the blockchains that are building up around the Cosmos hub, which was the first blockchain in this network. And so walk me through an example of how it works and I don't know if this is a good example uh, because these are both proof proof of work, but like I was thinking, you know, these are the two most popular coins. So like, what if I have Bitcoin and I want to use it on Ethereum? Can I use, and I, I like, I, I just mean theoretically, because obviously, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you're only working so far with things like IrisNet, but like, but like, if I wanted to do that theoretically, how would I use the Cosmos hub to do that? Or, you know, pick whatever blockchains are best for the example. So uh, it's, it, Proof, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are, are based on proof of work. So, uh, it's, it's a bit more uh, involved than just connecting two tenement based chains together. So uh, I'll use a different example and, and maybe get back to the Bitcoin example. So we have this framework called the Cosmos SDK. Uh, a lot of projects are building on the SDK in anticipation of IBC, uh, development being finished, uh, very soon. Uh, so, for example, uh, uh, Iris was mentioned. There's also Lino. It's another blockchain that's that's up and running. Uh, they they actually have the most amount of users. Uh, last I heard, 800,000 users on their chain. And um, with the IBC module, uh, the two blockchains can communicate securely. Uh, so, in other words, each blockchain can be aware of um, the other blockchain's uh, latest state, and they can start passing packets of information uh, back and forth. And uh, on top of the packet uh, is information encoded about how many tokens are being transferred to what blockchain and to what account on the destination. So it's really, uh, it can be as simple as creating a Cosmos SDK-based blockchain using that framework. But there are other frameworks that plug into Tenement as well. And so um, it doesn't have to be the SDK. But the idea is to create uh, uh, an interoperable network of blockchains that uh, is very easy to plug into. If you build on the SDK, it'd be very easy to connect to the Cosmos Hub. Okay, so so yeah, now we're <laughs> now we're getting into other um, terms we haven't defined uh, previously. So the Cosmos SDK, which I I think is it's that's a way uh, that you guys like provide tools for other developers to build their own blockchain. Is that correct? Yes, um, kind of like Ruby on Rails is, is uh, an easy way to build um, a new website. 
the Cosmos SDK is a framework for developing a blockchain application um, that, that also includes Tendermint. So Tendermint is very agnostic to um, how you develop your blockchain application. Uh, you can develop it in any language, uh, such as Python, Java, uh, or Go. Uh, and the SDK, the Cosmos SDK, is uh, currently the leading framework to build on Tendermint. And uh, it's a Go framework. Uh, Go is the language developed by Google. Um, it's a it's a great language for developing a secure, uh, complex application that um, that is very efficient and fast. And when I was learning about this, there was something that seemed somewhat similar to Substrate from the Parity team. Is that correct? There are a lot of uh, analogies. Um, maybe maybe uh, one way to uh, describe the, the differences. Maybe the way that Bitcoin is to Ethereum, um, Cosmos may be to, uh, to Polkadot. So uh, if you're referring to Polkadot, then it's, yeah, and Substrate. Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. So we, um, we, we like to keep things very simple and modular. Um, for example, our, uh, the Tendermint consensus algorithm is, um, it's a state-of-the-art consensus system, but it's all based on uh, very rather simple concepts. And we try to keep the consensus algorithm uh, as simple as possible because it's it's quite complex. Consensus systems, I think, are it's definitely one of the most complex things I've ever had to um, develop, and uh, it's really important to keep um, such a complex algorithm simple so that people can understand it. So there are similarities, uh, but um, maybe one large difference is that um, we don't start off, for example, with the assumption of complex cryptographic uh, primitives like BLS signatures. We don't have a virtual machine on the Cosmos Hub, although you can develop your own virtual machine uh, on the Cosmos SDK. The idea is that the Cosmos Hub is um, it's, it's there to be a uh, conservative set uh, of features uh, required to uh, scale the cryptocurrency ecosystem by enabling uh, inter-blockchain token transfers. And really, that's, that's all we want to solve. Uh, but there's a lot that you need to build in order to solve that well. For example, we, we had to implement a, a governance system so that the blockchain can decide on what to do in the case of various failures. Um, so there's a, there's a novel governance system built into the Cosmos Hub. Um, recently, the, uh, the network passed a, a proposal to upgrade uh, the, the Cosmos Hub to enable token transfers. So, so that's uh, governance in action there. And we had quite a bit of... Um, of, um, of, um, uh, of participation from the stakeholders. But uh, there's also a lot more uh, that you need in order to make a, a good proof-of-stake system. So there's the, uh, we have the um, pretty advanced or maybe the most advanced uh, proof-of-stake uh, delegation system so that you can take your staking tokens, anyone can delegate to any of the validators, uh, or you can run a validator yourself um, and earn uh, a proportion of... Um, of, of transaction fees and uh, there's a commission system built in um, recently there was a blockchain uh, I won't name it but they had a delegation system that um, allowed the uh, the validator or designer to to run off with the uh, earnings and the, and the fees from the delegators but we've uh, implemented a, um, a novel and a very efficient system that uh, automatically uh, handles uh, transaction fee distribution on chain. So uh, there's just like, yeah, there's a lot of components that, that need to come together to make this all happen. 
So one thing that is not clear to me is why would I use Cosmos rather than simply exchanging the tokens on an exchange or using an atomic swap? Well, you can use, uh, if you use an exchange to, uh, to swap tokens, let's say you have uh, bar coins on, on, on bar chain and foo coins on foo chain, and, and you, you have bar coins but uh, food chain has the functionality that you need because it has the smart contract system or the privacy features that you want that bar chain doesn't, then you would have to, um, you would have to trade bar coins for food coins. But with the Cosmos system uh, and via uh, two-way pegging and IBC connections, uh, you can use the same tokens on uh, any of the chains that accept them. So it, you're essentially using the same tokens, although it's two-way pegged, and uh, that opens uh, the door to a simplified model uh, for everyone. So you don't have to keep track of you know, different tokens in, in, in all those different chains. I think maybe maybe a good analogy for, you know, that question is it kind of sounds similar to me saying like, you know, why would I use the Internet when I could just use AOL? You know, so the, the Internet opens up a whole new host of possibilities, both for people building applications and for people using them that aren't really accessible through the kind of centralized gateway of an exchange or even just like a, a you know, a, a two way atomic swap. And so the kind of goal of the cosmos network is to really blow open the, the design space of possibilities for building new kinds of blockchains that um, can communicate with one another. And, you know, we're only, uh, we're at the very beginning of that experimentation. Here's, here's a, maybe a sim- uh, just one more analogy. So let's say uh, you want to scale Ethereum uh, because a single Ethereum chain can only process so many transactions per second. Once we peg, uh, once we connect to the Ethereum mainnet, um, you can uh, send your uh, Ether tokens to any number of uh, EVM-based chains. So there could be 100 uh, EVM-powered blockchains all connected to the Cosmos hub. And so now we have uh, an overall throughput that is 100 times greater than, than a single Ethereum chain, all using the same token. All right. And then one other thing I feel like I need to understand here is, so the Cosmos Hub is one of the blockchains that will exist in this system. And hubs have zones that are associated with them. So what are the zones and who builds the zone? Like, is it you guys that build the zone? Or because like, so like, for instance, you know, Zcash could have a zone, would it be that Zcash developers would need to build that? Or like, how does the how do you get these other chains to, you know, build these zones on your network? And also what, what, it, what happens in the zone and how does it relate to the original blockchain? So a zone, zone, zones and hubs are just kind of uh, relativistic distinctions between uh, different blockchains that more or less refer to the connectivity between them. So a hub is a blockchain just like a zone is a blockchain. Um, and anyone can build, you know, these kinds of blockchains and uh, permissionless, permissionlessly connect them. That That's kind of the key goal, right? So the Cosmos Hub is is up and online, and anyone who who wants to, who uh, has built a, a blockchain on top of Tendermint and that implements, uh, you know, the IBC protocol, which they would get for free if they use the Cosmos SDK, but they could implement themselves if they were using um, a different system, would then be able to, assuming they have a, a set of validators running their blockchain, uh, you know, whatever that set might be, they would then be able to connect uh, with the Cosmos Hub and engage in, you know, in in these kind of one way. Uh, uh, token transfers and, and data transfers through the Cosmos Hub. 
And so, and, and wait, you know, and so just so I'm clear, so the Cosmos Hub only supports blockchains running on the Tendermint consensus algorithm, and in it the will short only term. ever. Oh, okay. So then, at some point, you'll build out support for other types of consensus algorithms. We would like to. So, so really, what this comes down to is um, the IBC protocol, right? And and the IBC protocol uh, has a number of requirements um, for you know, a, a consensus system and, and for a, a blockchain to be able to utilize it. And right now we are, um, you know, Tendermint is our main reference point uh, for, for what that should look like, but we're trying to design the IBC specification to be uh, generalized enough so that any other kind of blockchain consensus system that satisfied the same kind of guarantees that Tendermint does uh, would also be able to uh, participate in this kind of IBC ecosystem. And then one other thing that I've seen is that in order to connect to Cosmos blockchains, it, it's best if the blockchain has fast final, finality rather than probabilistic finality. Yeah. And Bitcoin and Ethereum have probabilistic final, finality, and they're the most popular blockchains. So can you define fast finality versus probabilistic finality? Well, let's start there. Just just define the difference between the two. Sure. Uh, and, and so this is exactly the kind of property I, I was talking about with, with respect to IBC that, that Tendermint provides. So any other, um, you know, consensus algorithm that would provide this kind of fast finality, uh, and a few other things would, would fit within the IBC framework. Basically what fast finality means is that the protocol is designed such that, uh, within the assumptions of the protocol, which are, you know, which tend to be that, uh, you know, less than a third of the, of the participants or of the voting power, um, are malicious. So within those assumptions, when a block is um, is created and voted on and committed, it's finalized. And that happens very quickly. And what that means, finalized, is that it will not later be reverted. There's no, there's no way within the protocol for a block to be undone once it's been committed, right? And, and so that's kind of what we mean by fast finality, that this finalization process whereby you have a, a strong guarantee within the protocol that the block is, is uh, committed, it happens very quickly, right? And we can contrast that with this kind of probabilistic finality that proof-of-work-based blockchains offer, like Bitcoin and Ethereum, where uh, technically, uh, theoretically, and you know, also in practice, blocks can actually be reverted at any time as part of the protocol, right? So in the Bitcoin protocol, you know, uh, blocks can be orphaned, which means a miner mines a block, sends it out to the network, but other mi- another miner mined a block at the same height, and other people built on top of that one. And so one of the blocks... You know, even though it was created and people saw it, and even if you know possibly a few blocks were built on top of it, it still gets reverted, right? And that's part and that's part of uh, the protocol where you have to wait some number of blocks. You know, in Bitcoin they typically say six um, before the probability that it will be reverted is low enough uh, that you can have enough confidence to you know continue on with your economic or commercial activity, right? And so dealing with that kind of uh, probabilistic nature of of the commit of a block. Uh, makes it very difficult to build these kinds of interoperability protocols because you don't know, you know, once a block has been committed, you don't really know when when that commit has happened or if it's going to be reverted and you don't get the same kind of guarantee, right? So, so that's basically the difference is that in a probabilistic, probabilistically final protocol, uh, blocks can be reverted, like undone as part of the protocol. Whereas in something with, fa- with fast finality like Tendermint, once a block is committed, you know, it's never reverted. Of course, if the assumptions of the protocol uh, fail, like, you know, maybe more than a third of the validators happen to be malicious, then, you know, the guarantees, at least some of these guarantees, um, you know, could fail and then blocks could be reverted, but that would be considered a failure state rather than just like a normal occurrence. And once, once it fails, um, there's a, there's a way to figure out 
which uh, greater than one third of voting power is responsible for it and recover from it. And uh, just one one thing I wanted to mention is that uh, it's it's fast finality uh, in, in the sense also that blocks can be committed very quickly. So in um, in the Cosmos Hub, for example, blocks are committed uh, once every six seconds. Okay, so yeah, I actually wanted to ask about validation in the Cosmos network because so you guys only have one hundred validators to start. Is that really sufficient to secure the chain? Like, how can you be sure that, because as far as I understand, so if, as you mentioned, it can go into a failure state if more than a third of the voting power is like, is not there. So, and that's all that's necessary, I think, to create a fork, right? So that would be 33 validators. How, like, it just feels like it's so easy that it's going to fail. It's actually much less than 33 right now because it's 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 33% of the, you know, it's one third of the total voting power, right? And so I think right now that's, you know, about five validators. If they if they got together, they would control uh, more than one third of the voting power. So, you know, obviously it could be much better than that. And we would like to see it decentralized far beyond five. Um, I think it's it's important to note that a few things. First of all, the faults are attributable, which means that if if this one third or more than one third gets together to you know maliciously uh, uh, fork the blockchain or revert blocks or whatever, they can't that the them doing that is attributable. So anyone else looking at that will know who was involved, right? Um, and so you know it, the community then can say, okay, well these guys are untrustworthy. We know that they're the bad guys because there's you know irrefutable proof that they did it. And so we can, we'll make a new blockchain and, you know, and, and fork them out. And so to some extent, right, we rely but then, on these. I like, mean, but they could just like change their identity and hook up to the new blockchain. It would be like not exactly a simple attack, but do you know what I mean? They like, could, but they wouldn't necessarily have stake in the new blockchain because the new blockchain could say, well, we're going to eliminate all those validators stake uh, and, and kind of start again over here. Right. So, right, but uh, I, I mean, okay. But they could obtain stake again. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you wouldn't I mean, know right, that it was the a, same entity. You wouldn't. You could though, right? Because uh, part of part of the proof of stake system is that you have to attract valid, you have to attract delegators, and part of doing that is establishing, um, you know, a, a robust public identity. And so, if you look at the top validators, at least on Cosmos, they're all publicly identifiable, publicly recognizable uh, entities who have significant reputation on the line. So, to some extent, at least, there is this kind of uh, you know business relationship or, or business offering um, that these people are positioning for. And that that helps to kind of secure this in a way that, you know, is maybe blasphemous in the eyes of, say, a Bitcoin maximalist, but I think is part of the reality of the next generation of blockchains. If I may, um, I'll try to draw an analogy to to Bitcoin. So in Bitcoin, um, there's a lot of miners, but um, there's only so many mining pools within the top 99 percentile. And uh, even to get to 51% of proof of work voting power is only a handful, um, maybe even less than five uh, today of, of, of uh, mining pools. Imagine if, um, so in Bitcoin, if the mining pools were to get together and, uh, and uh, conduct a 51% attack or a double spend, then uh, they would lose the energy that they spent for, say, the one hour or however many hours, however many blocks, uh, just a handful of blocks. Uh, that would be lost, but they would not lose their mining infrastructure. But in a proof-of-stake system, 
they would lose all of their stake. So it's as if uh, the miners would, were to lose all of their, like their, it's as if their mining equipment were to blow up. So it's uh, potentially uh, significantly even more secure. Oh, that's interesting. And also earlier you were saying that essentially you would just fork the system. So, but then you still have, oh, well, no, I guess at that point you would solicit new validators because otherwise then you have like even reduced a reduced number of validators. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like if you fork and you get rid of the bad actors, then Mm -hmm. you're starting off with a pool of validators that's even smaller than before and is even more gameable. Well, but, but it's likely that the distribution of stake will be a little bit more uniform, right? Because if it was before concentrated in the top five and you've gotten rid of the top five, then your new validator set is going to be more, um, uh, more evenly distributed. Now that, you know, there's, there's a lot of parameters around how this would actually shake out with respect to the new token that would be created by this fork and what the value of that token is and how much would actually be at stake. So, you know, you're right that there are uh, significant concerns and, and security issues around this. Um, but, you know, we believe that this is a, uh, an alternative system to what exists with, with proof of work and that, uh, it is more secure in, in many respects. And at the very least there is, um, significant skin in the game. There's a lot more at stake for people participating and there's kind of this new opportunity to build, uh, you know, resilient fault tolerant networks, with certain, you know, very strong guarantees that you can actually at least look at and understand the guarantees and understand the failure mode and, and what the risk is, right? And in, in the same way that there are risks that the banks collude or that in existing systems, you know, things will go wrong, but it's all, you know, behind closed doors and there's not much transparency and you can't really, you can't really analyze the structure of the system in the same way. At least here, all of that is kind of out on the table. You know, there's a lot of encouragement for the identities of the validators to be public uh, and so on. All right, we're going to discuss more about security after the break, but first a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Ethereal Summit returns to New York City this May 10th to 11th to kick off Blockchain Week and offer you a chance to go deep into the heart of crypto, blockchain, and Ethereum. Ethereal Summit is where you can get up close with the builders of blockchain and Ethereum, including many guests from Laura's podcast, like Amber Balde, Tushar Jain, Amin Soleimani, Chris Berniski, and Mike Novogratz. Head to etherealsummit.com with the discount code LAURA20 to get 20% off tickets to join Laura and hundreds of the brightest minds in blockchain at Ethereal Summit New York, May 10th and 11th at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn. Did you know that if money laundering were an economy, its GDP would be the size of Canada's? Large volumes of tainted crypto assets move through financial networks, often below the radar of banks. Cybercriminals use unregulated crypto exchanges to avoid detection. No wonder governments around the world are rolling out tough, new anti-money laundering laws for cryptocurrencies. Complying with those laws isn't easy. Banks and exchanges need the best cryptocurrency intelligence available to avoid penalties. Now you can use the same powerful AML and compliance monitoring tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. To learn more, visit cyphertrace.com slash unchained. Back to my conversation with Jay Kwan and Ethan Buckman of Tendermint and Cosmos. So, I mean, you guys admit already that, you know, right now the system is not very secure. What's your plan to get more 
I, well, I don't even know how you would do it, but it, it sounds to me like you would need more validators. Am I right? I'm sorry. I, like, I, how- I, I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's fair to say that, that we admit the system's not very secure. I mean, security is a very, very dense, complex topic and there's a lot of dimensions to it. And in some ways, oh, well, you know, I mean, but Cosmos earlier is- when you said that it would only take five validators because of the way things are delegated to have Sure, but it only takes like three mining pools to, you know, to collude, to have a 51% attack on Bitcoin. So it's already more decentralized than Bitcoin. Okay. Okay. So, so you feel comfortable with where you guys are at? You don't feel... We're, we're sure that this is the right way to do it. And here's, here's one more example. Well, okay. First, I want to address your point earlier. Um, it, once there is an attack, uh, those validators who conducted the attack and they're greater than one third of the total stake that was bonded would disappear. They would, they would get slashed out. And, uh, there would be, say, 95 or 90 validators left, but more validators can enter and the delegations would change to accommodate. But, Okay, so that's one aspect. But uh, I think the more important aspect and, and the greater purpose of, and, or the reason why this is necessary uh, for a scalable cryptocurrency ecosystem is because with proof of work, uh, you're relying on miners who are so anonymous uh, that it's really easy for a small chain or any, any chain that's, say, not Bitcoin to get uh, 51% attacked. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, the miners would not get punished much. I mean, uh, they would not be found. Um, their energy would be wasted, but um, that opportunity cost is small compared to how much they might gain. And so with a proof-of-work system, or if you only had proof-of-work, you can't really have more than one secure blockchain. With proof-of-stake and Tendermint Byzantine fault-tolerant-based proof-of-stake especially, the security of one chain is independent of external actors. Uh, no matter how much computation power um, a, a nation state may have, if a uh, if if one blockchain and their validators didn't want to double spend the chain, then they will remain secure. Uh, there's just no way from an exter- uh, for an external actor to to affect the security of a chain in a proof of stake system. Okay, and what you mean by that? Because that was a question I was going to ask you later on. So what you're seeing is a nation state can go to a miner on a proof of work blockchain and shut down their mining equipment or cut off their access to electricity. But here, they can't force somebody to to unbond their state or, or I don't I don't know if, if I've used the terms correctly, but they can't force them to... Um, to move the the coins out of their stake. Is that what you're saying? Mm, I mean, any actor, uh, including a, a colluding set of powerful miners with powerful uh, you know, electricity and mining infrastructure, could attack any other chain as long as um, their mining equipment uh, and, and the proof-of-work algorithm were you know, uh, compatible. And, and largely they are. Whereas in a proof-of-stake system, um, yeah, you can't you can't attack that externally with with proof of work uh, or computation power. So even if uh, no matter how much money um, an organization or, or even a nation state were to have, sure, if 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 they were to cut um, all the access to you know the global internet uh, infrastructure, or uh, then you know <laughs> everything's off the table. But you know beyond that, 
it's it's a very secure system. Okay, this is interesting. But one other thing I wanted to ask about the number of validators you have. So in your white paper, you showed how with uh, 64 validators, you can get about 4,000 transactions per second, or, or it was in the single digit thousands, but it wasn't tens of thousands. And, you know, over time, you guys plan to increase to like 300 validators. So would that then decrease the amount of of transactions per second? Because because in, in the white paper, the graphics show that the more validators you have, the fewer transactions you get per second, like when it's, you know, four or whatever, it was like in the tens of thousands. But so how, how do you plan to, you know, kind of increase the number of validators, but then also keep the throughput high? So um, that paper was describing um, the, the performance characteristics of, of Tendermint. And largely the, the biggest thing that happens uh, with many, like a lot more validators, say a thousand um, validators versus a hundred, is that uh, your block commit time gets uh, gets slower? So as opposed to say five second blocks, you might it might take fifteen seconds. Um, but um, and the reason why is because uh, this kind of consensus system that we're building, classical uh, Byzantine fault tolerant algorithms that, that Tendermint is based off of, um, requires quite a bit of communication overhead. So that's why we limit it to one hundred uh, validators today. But I would say that a blockchain, you know, a public blockchain especially, should really be uh, a, a, a ledger, an application that can run on any laptop. Uh, it should be able to run on, on, a, on a typical uh, workstation. And so because otherwise developers don't have access to it, right? the blockchain should be accessible. Anyone should be able to sync with it. So I would say you don't want that many transactions per second on a single blockchain. Instead, what we focus on is uh, providing horizontal scalability by uh, allowing coordination among many blockchains uh, in order to get uh, overall higher transaction throughput. And by that, you mean like you'll have multiple hubs that are working within the Cosmos network. And so people can, if one hub is kind of at its max, then they can just go to another hub. Is that what you're saying? Um, primarily what I mean is having many, many zones or many blockchains connected to a hub. So by virtue of, say, having a hundred uh, blockchains connected to the hub, you get um, you get a hundred times the throughput than having a single blockchain. Um, but you can also mm-hmm. have uh, a hierarchy or uh, it doesn't have to be a hierarchy. You can have a network of hubs as well. Huh. Okay, that's interesting. So one other thing I want to draw out not only for the listeners, but also for myself, because I've heard this term so many times and I think I sort of understand it, but I could not explain it in simple terms to somebody else. So that's why I'm not really sure if I understand it. So when describing your consensus algorithm, you all, you're always talking about practical Byzantine fault tolerance. What, what exactly does that mean? Practical Byzantine fault tolerance was a consensus algorithm that was described, I believe, in a 1999 paper. Um, so I'll just give a really brief history of, of uh, these non-proof-of-work classical Byzantine consensus uh, algorithms. It, it started with uh, in about uh, the 70s or so. Um, so in, in 
academia in, in the papers and in, in literature, uh, there had been a lot of research into um, uh, Byzantine fault-tolerant uh, consensus algorithms that don't use proof-of-work. And then, of course, in and 2008... Wait, and so, and, but can you describe what Byzantine fault-tolerant means? Okay. Um, Byzantine means uh, arbitrary or malicious behavior. Um, so... In a public blockchain, because it's an open system where uh, anyone can participate, uh, you need to be able to tolerate arbitrary behavior, especially behavior that is malicious and trying to attack, say, fork the blockchain. So Byzantine fault tolerance means the ability to tolerate malicious behavior. And there's always a, um, there's always a limitation to how much fault tolerance uh, a consensus system can tolerate. And uh, in proof-of-work, uh, that's uh, 49% of malicious proof-of-work mining power. And uh, on the flip side of that, okay, and in, but in Tendermint, um, it's, uh, it's, it's 33% of, of voting power. Uh, the reason why it's 49 versus 33 is because um, in, in Tendermint, we designed a system to be uh, fast. So it's, it's based on... Uh, what, what, what consensus literature calls uh, um, uh, a partially synchronous uh, model, um, which just means um, uh, essentially you're, you're trying to make progress as soon as possible, and you're acknowledging that the network might have some delays. Uh, Bitcoin uh, can tolerate slightly more, 49%, but it's also slower. And block times are 10 minutes each, and you have to wait an hour and all of that is because it makes the assumption, um, it makes less assumptions or actually stronger assumptions about the network. And, and it requires um, uh, that much time to ensure that blocks can fully propagate. Does that answer your question? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so, Laura, can you explain to us now what Byzantine fault tolerance is? Um, <laughs> so, basically, it's a way of designing a system where uh, the system can still be secure, even if there is some, uh, threshold of, uh, or, you know, under, under a certain threshold of bad actors. Um, mm-hmm. is that, that's right. That's right. Okay. That's basically right. So the, yeah. the, just the industrial context for this, the reason, you know, academics started working on it is because humans decided they wanted to use computers to fly airplanes. And when you put a computer on an airplane 30,000 feet in the air, it's in a very hostile environment. There's a lot of incoming radiation and the bits could arbitrarily flip and the computer could fail in, in weird ways or, or not just crash, but explicitly do something that it wasn't programmed to do, like some incorrect behavior, right? And so the challenge that was posed to the researchers was how can you build a consensus system between the computers that are on an airplane that is fault tolerant, not just to some of those computers crashing, but even to some of them doing something incorrect? And, and, you know, as part of that, it meant, well, there had to be some kind of a voting algorithm in there so that you would need a quorum, you know, like some kind of supermajority or something. And so that you would only, you would only say that, uh, you know, something happened once that large set had agreed on it. And even if some of the computers, you know, are failing in arbitrary ways and telling you incorrect information, you know, the, the system would still be okay and your airplane would still fly straight. And so that was kind of generalized over time to, you know, how can we build these systems that operate over the internet with many different stakeholders that are participating, where they all can stay in sync, they're basically sharing a database, even though some of the participants might be explicitly malicious or adversarial. And the word Byzantine has come to represent any kind of arbitrary, you know, non, uh, non protocol following behavior, right? So anyone that's acting incorrectly, according to the rules of the protocol is effectively Byzantine. 
And so what's, what's unique, you know, about the Cosmos hub and, and, and where its security comes from and so on is the fact that it's really the first, uh, the first system to use classic Byzantine fault tolerant consensus protocols on the public internet with real economic value at stake. And to even have, you know, only quote unquote, only five, you know, distinct stakeholders on in multiple jurisdictions across the world, you know, with more than a third of the stake is, is a huge step forward for, you know, computer science and economics in, in some sense. So, um, you know, as much as we'd like to improve that further and maybe five isn't enough, it's still a huge gap from what was previously just one entity. Right. But so I'm glad that you circled back to this because I did want to ask also about what happened during the game of stakes, which was this competition that you held in testnet, because it looks to me like there were some participants who showed how easy it would be to create a, car- a cartel amongst the validators with an incident about <laughs> involving a group called Bitfish. So can you mm-hmm. describe what happened there? And then just describe that story first. Sure. So I, it, I think it's important to understand the, the the difference between the game of stakes test and the main net, right? Uh, they're very different conditions. And when, when we kind of set out to do game of stakes, uh, you know, there were, there were a few things we were going after and, and it's possible that we conflated too much at once and that, you know, in future iterations of a game of stakes like thing, uh, you want to disentangle the different goals. And so one of the goals was really to prepare validators for, you know, adversarial scenarios and, and staying online and securing their private keys and, you know, actually operating, um, the network, right? Because we want experts basically to be, to be involved in this. And so game mistakes offered people, um, a real ability to do that. The other thing we thought we'd be able to test, but I think, uh, probably turned out not to be the case was the actual economics of the system. And the reason it wasn't an accurate test of the economics is because it was just a short term game with uh, a minimal amount at stake, right? So no one had to pay to actually participate. You know, there were expenses to running servers, but no one had to pay an entry cost. And there was nothing, uh, you wouldn't lose anything, right? So because you weren't putting anything up, if you did something wrong, uh, you weren't going to lose any money. There was some reward on the table, uh, you know, in, in the form of Adams, but it's very, and it, and it was a short-term game where your reputation wouldn't be damaged if you uh, attack the, the system maliciously. So the game of stakes context is very different from mainnet and so it's hard to really uh, draw too much uh, learnings on the economic side from game of stakes and apply them to, to mainnet. What did happen on game of stakes, which was, you know, it was very interesting to see is that so, so first of all, to participate in game of stakes, you had to complete uh, a KYC process, right? So we collected quite a bit of information um, uh, about the participants and, and that was required for participation and to actually uh, potentially receive the, uh, the reward. And so and just what happened, out of curiosity, why, why, if there wasn't real money? Oh, oh, because they were being rewarded. At yeah, the, 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 re- oh, the reward was in was in Adams, right? And so basically, the the foundation, who uh, you know, the Interchain Foundation, which coordinated the game of stakes process, uh, said that of its allocation of Adams in the Genesis block, you know, it would recommend that some of those go towards the winners of game of stakes. But in order to do that in a regulatory compliant manner, you know, it, it collected um, KYC information from all the participants and and so on. Um, okay. And we also we also expected that by collecting KYC, it would prevent anyone from uh, mounting a civil attack on the on the system or on the game, right? So that we'd have so that no one would just be able to kind of um, knock out the game by taking over with thirty three percent of the of the vote. But what ended up happening was there was a civil attack where some group, uh, uh, this Bitfish group, ended up collecting, uh, you know, signing up using a, a large number of their relatives and friends and so on to actually register in the process and completed the KYC for them, but thereby ended up controlling a significant amount of stake. 
And this was actually a number of people claimed to have detected this very early on when they saw, you know, a bunch of nodes come online at the same time and, and so on. And I think people were really curious to see how, how it would play out. But what ended up happening was they basically came to control uh, a quite a significant portion of the stake on the network. And so the rest of the, the rest of the validators, the rest of the participants basically coordinated to have them removed, right? So they basically mounted a hard fork, uh, to remove that, uh, that cabal from um from the validator set and and to move on without them yeah did i read that they eventually collected 55 percent of the voting powder power i think i think that's about right yeah wow so do you feel like the resolution that the remaining validators came up with is something that would actually happen in in you know a, a normal situation not in a test net situation uh it's conceivable. Uh, I, I don't know. I think a single validator collecting that much. Uh, so there were also some parameter changes on the on the game of stakes that made accumulation of stake in the large validators happen a lot more quickly. And so you know that's 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 not the case on mainnet. So uh, attaining that much stake in one validator is probably you know far less likely to happen if at all. If it, if it did happen, I don't know how, how the rest of the network uh, w- would respond. It's possible they would do that. It's possible they would start by, you know, petitioning online to say, oh, you know, you should decentralize, reduce your stake. It's kind of like what we saw with, uh, I think it was Gigahash, the mining pool a few years ago in Bitcoin. You know, they had close to 50% or at one point over 50%. And there was a large, um, you know, social effort to have people, uh, you know, point their miners somewhere else to reduce their stake back down. And so, you know, it's possible the same kind of tactics could be used here. Um, so s- let's move on because we're running out of time. One other thing that I was curious about. So, you know, I totally get how uh, Cosmos is interesting because it enables this interoperability between chains. But in a way right now, we have something like that on Ethereum with all these decentralized apps being able to interact with each other. So why should a developer build a blockchain using Cosmos rather than just launching a decentralized application on Ethereum where they can tap into this whole ecosystem that's been built there? So the main difference here is the is the developer environment, right? So on Ethereum, you're confined to the Ethereum virtual machine, which is a very limited and, and almost a, a toy version of an execution environment. And, and you're, you're stuck with the languages that were built for that virtual machine, which are very young, at most a couple years old, and you know they're maturing and they're you know everything's improving over time. But compared to a well-established language like GoLang or Rust or JavaScript or anything that people have been writing in for you know a decade, if not longer, um, you know the Ethereum development environment just pales in comparison to that. So if you want to be to free yourself from that and to use you know mature uh, language tools and, and developer tools that you've been using potentially for decades and build a blockchain application in that you know, kind of much more friendly and, and mature development environment, uh, you know, Cosmos offers the opportunity for that. I, I want to be fair to the Ethereum system in that there's definitely a need for a scripting system, say a, a flexible way to upload arbitrary uh, logic onto a chain. And so I think that is a fantastic idea. It allows for uh, interoperability within a single chain uh, so, so that's great, and that will that will remain, and I believe Solidity will will remain um, a, a useful and viable, uh, important part of the cryptocurrency ecosystem. But um, uh, there are some limitations to to this. Uh, one is you're reliant on, uh, as of now, a single chain. So there's um, only so many transactions per second they can uh, that the Ethereum mainnet can handle. Uh, but also, in the case of of let's say. Uh, conflict 
right? So if you remember what happened with uh, the DAO hack and the and the and the hard fork that happened from uh, the DAO hack, um, there was a lot of uh, discussion and, and contention about what to do about that situation. So in that case, uh, what happened was the, the the chain itself split into two um, uh, because there wasn't uh, uh, a good governance system built in. But uh, you, you can see how uh, in the case of contention for all kinds of issues in the future, there will be more issues like this in general as, uh, as cryptocurrencies and blockchain ecosystem uh, uh, matures and, and grows. Um, it's necessary to have uh, to provide sovereignty to um, a collection of uh, a community that wants to run their own chain. So by having the Cosmos network and allowing any blockchain to have their own validator set and their own application logic and their own rules and their own governance, uh, we believe um, this is necessary to, to accommodate uh, everyone uh, in, a, in a large uh, new token uh, economy. And so there is this proposal for something called Ethermint, which is Ethereum running on Tendermint. So it's not clear to me how, like, how would that be different from Ethereum? Like, what what could people do in Ethermint that they couldn't do in Ethereum? Or like, why would they prefer that environment over Ethereum? And also, is this like something people are actually working on? Or is it a proposal? I couldn't figure that out either. So it is, it is a real project. Um, it's in, you know, it, it, it's in development. It's still in, um, you know, it's still, uh, kind of alpha software. I mean, everything is still kind of alpha software, but, um, <laughs> uh, Ethermint, Ethermint in particular, we've, we, we had an initial version, uh, you know, a couple of years ago and, and we've rewritten it to use now the Cosmos SDK so that it can integrate, uh, very nicely into the Cosmos network. And the idea there is kind of like, like Jay was saying, you know, as much as, as, as kind of young and, and novel as the Ethereum virtual machine is, it's still extremely valuable to have that kind of a, uh, a scripting engine where you can just like upload code on the fly. Um, and you know, there's a huge developer community there and there's a, there's a ton of interesting work happening, you know, being built on top of the Ethereum virtual machine. And, and so, you know, what, what we built with Ethermint was basically a way to support anything you might build on the Ethereum virtual machine. But now running on, instead of it running on proof of work, like it would on the Ethereum mainnet, it can run on top of Tendermint, right? And so, you know, uh, you can do anything you could have done on Ethereum, but now you can do it faster and with, uh, with lower latency and on a, you know, on a blockchain where the validator set of that chain kind of has more sovereignty compared to the rest of the Ethereum network. So, but the one thing you can't do if you're using Ethermint is communicate with all the other smart contracts that have been deployed on the Ethereum mainnet because you're on a different blockchain, of course. Oh, you can't. Oh. So no, not immediately. I, I understand. Mean, if, if you stand so, up an Ethermint, okay. right? So anyone could take the Ethermint software and run an Ethermint blockchain with some validator set, and they could deploy, you know, they could take any contracts that they've written for the Ethereum mainnet, and they could run those on their Ethermint deployment, right? But it's, a, it's an isolated blockchain. And so unless it's connected up through the Cosmos network to everything else, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of stands on its own. And even once it is connected up, it, it won't have the same kind of access that a contract on mainnet Ethereum would have to the other contracts on mainnet Ethereum, right? So we're working on that interoperability piece, but it's still, you know, it's still a little bit away and it's a different, it'll be a different kind of interoperability than you would get if you deployed directly to mainnet, right? So if you want to talk directly to other contracts on mainnet Ethereum, you pretty much have no choice but to deploy a contract to mainnet Ethereum. 
right? Okay, so looking- it's not like you would create like MakerDAO on EtherMint, and then suddenly like people would be using the EtherMint die to, you know, I guess take out loans using Dharma or or put that money into Compound and earn interest. Like st- so, it would basically you'd have to create that whole new ecosystem. Exactly. So you can okay. replicate all of that DeFi stuff on top of Ethermint on Cosmos. Mm-hmm. The benefit of doing that would be that there could be a, a much higher throughput, right? Because you could have, um, well, first of all, it's running on Tendermint, so it would be much faster than on on the, the proof of work public Ethereum blockchain. But because we can also have the vertical scalability through having multiple Ethermint blockchains that are able to connect to one another, you could get you know, you, you could overall run more, you know, they wouldn't have to contend with, say, CryptoKitties, say, right? The CryptoKitties transactions could be on one Ethermint blockchain and a bunch of the other DeFi stuff could be on another. And, you know, in that way, you'd be able to have higher higher throughput through the system. Well, I just wanted to add here that um, we're focusing on token interoperability to start, but um, we will be designing our tech so that eventually uh, it will be possible to also make cross-chain smart contract calls but uh, our focus with the Cosmos Hub uh, certainly um, uh, is is just to, to focus on the token economy uh, to start off with. But IBC, PEGI, uh, which is our uh, IBC equivalent to connect to Ethereum, um, eventually can be used for any kind of uh, cross-chain interoperability. All right. And actually, I'm glad you brought up tokens again, because I did also want to ask about atoms. So what do atoms do in the Cosmos network? And for for at this moment, if I own atoms, what can I do with them? Atoms uh, are, it's, uh, the, we call it a staking token. So it's not meant to be a, uh, a currency. It's not, it's certainly not a stable coin. It's not meant to be something that you transact with regularly. But it's maybe analogous to virtual Bitcoin miners in that uh, it gives you a voting power on the Cosmos Hub. Um, so when you stake your your staking tokens, your atoms, uh, you can participate um, as a validator, or you can delegate your your staked tokens to any other validators, uh, and that gives you access to governance. You can vote on proposals. Uh, it also gives you um, uh, access to transaction fees, so you can earn transaction fees and uh, any block rewards in the future. Um, yeah. And since you also mentioned governance, it I mean, you did mention it earlier as well. It sounds like it's done on-chain. Can you describe how that works? Yeah. So uh, it's a very simple governance system where you can make any proposal you want. So the, 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 the last proposal that passed was just written in English. And uh, the idea is that as long as uh, more than 51% of the bonded stakeholders uh, vote in favor of that proposal, it passes. So there's there's a social consensus layer, too. Um, and so you can imagine there being an implicit constitution that's also implemented in a code. And there's also a bit of a, of a twist in that um, a, a one-third minority can also veto um, so even though a proposal passes, it's possible for it to be vetoed um, uh, in case there's a, a, a small minority that is strongly uh, not in favor of that proposal. But um, yeah, that's the basic idea. And soon we will have uh, parameter changes uh, as well. So through governance, you can tweak the parameters of this blockchain. 
And, um, and certainly you can upgrade a chain through plain English proposals, but in the future, you can imagine we'll also implement um, automatic upgrading as well. And then earlier in the podcast, we talked about some of the other, I guess, these are blockchains that are building zones, I, I think. Um, I'm just mm-hmm. blanking on the, the names. Um, <laughs> the Cosmos SDK? Uh, they're short names. There's there's two. Like that Iris are... and, and Lino. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lino. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I think the, aren't there other ones that are, that are using Tendermint as well? Like, isn't Binance Dex using Tendermint? Yeah. And, and, uh, we believe, a, a, a variant of the Cosmos SDK. So there's, there's actually a, a very large number of, um, projects building either directly on Tendermint or using the Cosmos SDK. For instance, Loom, which is a, a project that's built around, uh, you know, pegs to, uh, Ethereum is built on top of Tendermint. And then, you know, there, there's many others as well. So there is this so kind in the of, short term, like which would be the change that chains that would be interoperable? Well, it's up to them. Um, so the ones that are using the Cosmos SDK uh, will get the interoperability kind of out of the box when that when those features land in the SDK and others would have to kind of either either pull them in or, or make it work within their within the framework they use to build their blockchain application. Um, but they would, you know, the, the goal of the IBC specification is to make it general purpose enough that anyone would be able to implement it, you know, and be compatible with it, regardless of, um, of what they're, of how they built their application on top of Tendermint and down the road on top of other consensus algorithms too. Mm. And there are other frameworks uh, besides the SDK that people are using as well. So there's, there's Lotion, uh, which is, uh, an, an SDK for JavaScript. And um, so, uh, some projects are even implementing their own or, or foregoing any frameworks and building directly on top of Tendermint. Uh, so, for example, there's the, um, the Thailand uh, National ID project, which is built directly on Tendermint. And uh, in the future, uh, they can also interoperate with the Cosmos Hub through IBC. All right. And so now Tendermint, the company, has launched Cosmos. Uh, but you guys also recently raised $9 million led by Paradigm, which is the crypto VC firm that was launched by Fred Urson, the co- co-founder of Coinbase, and Matt Huang, formerly of Sequoia Capital. So what's next for for you guys? Like, what are you focused on? Just just a bit of clarification. Um, Tendermint is, is the software provider, and it was the Interchain Foundation, uh, technically, that, that launched the chain. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, but no problem. Um, we're focusing well, it was, on it was the community that launched the chain. Oh. We're all part of the community. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real here. All right. It wasn't neither it was decentralized. Neither the, neither the company nor the Interchain Foundation were actually running validators. So the the network launched completely independent of the of those entities, which I mm. think was was quite cool to see. In case anyone from the SEC is listening, <laughs> or or anyone else who's interested in this decentralized launch of, of cryptocurrency networks. Yes. Uh, we're currently focused on uh, completing the uh, infrastructure. So IBC is a big one. Peggy uh, is the next. But um, uh, at Tendermint, the company is also, um, soon after we're done with all of this, we'll be developing actual applications. So looking for um, a sustainable source of revenue in uh, two prongs. Um, one, something in the financial space and something else uh, that's a little less financial that uh, we can't talk about yet, but would love to uh, discuss as soon as we can. Okay. Well, I guess maybe I'll open with that the next time I have you guys on Unchained. Okay. So where can people learn more about you and Cosmos? 
and Tendermint and the Interchain Foundation and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, <I> mean, <laughs> lots of respective websites. So the, the, the main the main Cosmos website is uh, cosmos.network. And especially if you check out, um, you know, cosmos.network slash launch, there are a, a list of block explorers there where you can go, you know, there's a whole bunch of community built block explorers where you can explore the network, see the validators. Um, there's also Looney, which is listed there, looney.io, which is um, a wallet system that was built for interacting with, with the Cosmos network and exploring it. And then Tendermint, of course, tendermint.com. Um, and that's, that's a site both for the company and for uh, the product, Tendermint. And then for the Interchain Foundation, there's interchain.io, which is just the homepage for, uh, for the Swiss Foundation. Great. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Jay and Ethan and Cosmos and Tenderman and the Interchain Foundation, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. If you're not yet signed up for my email newsletter, go to unchainedpodcast.com right now to get my thoughts on the top crypto stories of the week. And be sure to check out our new channel on YouTube. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Rayleigh Gallipoli, Fractional Recording, Jenny Josephson, Daniel Ness, and Rich Truffolino. Thanks for listening.